mean, you, you have to have the, the psychological components for trauma and debriefings and counseling. I'm not taking anything away from what we're doing. Uh-huh. But the two obvious signs that somebody's having a stress reaction is sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. 83% of our law enforcement personnel have inadequate sleep. 83%. That means mm-hmm. it's the oddball that gets seven to eight hours of sleep because 83% are sleeping four to six hours. And that's one of the causes, the, the, the major issue in terms of some uh, mood and affect disorders. But the second indication that somebody's having a stress disorder is incremental weight gain around the abdominal area. Sheep dog nation, I'm so excited. Um, I'm pretty much like freaking bouncing off the walls right now to share um, this um, expert, this guest with you, with all of us. Um, We have Dr. Kevin Gilmartin on the show. If you live under a rock, then um, you don't know who he is, but that's not okay because he wrote literally the Bible for law enforcement. It's called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Um, I think I read it every six months. <laughs> um, and um, I recommend it to every single law enforcement officer and spouse. I think this is really a big, a great book for spouses too. Dr. Gilmartin, we're so excited to have you on. Welcome. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Can you do um, me a favor? Can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. Well, I'm a retired law enforcement person from uh, Arizona, and I have a PhD in clinical psychology. And for the last, oh my gosh, billion years, I've been um, working with cops and firefighters across the U.S., Canada, and Australia, and just looking at what happens to them, these men and women in their journey, and trying to come up with strategies to give them some information that makes their life a little easier, a little, little more higher quality for the journey they have to take. So that's, that's pretty much my story there. <laughs> Not very busy at all. <laughs> well, you know, I try to keep busy. But. Uh, um, where did you, so where did you, police, you, you've been a police officer for 20 years? Yeah, I retired uh, in Tucson, Arizona. That's where my, my career was, was spent. Wow. Um, was it hot there? It's hot here today, <laughs> but, but in the winter, it's the most beautiful city in the country. So I'll, I'll brag on, on, the, on the winter weather and curse the uh, summer weather. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys, when you guys used to work patrol, did you guys have those like vents that you could like stick up your pants or like stick up your like sleeves to like cool you down? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, 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 I'm old school. We just sweated. <laughs> we just sweated. <laughs> <laughs> you wore a big hat. And you, you hunted the shade. If you had seniority, the, the old cops tried to get midnights. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty miserable. It's it's pretty much like um, the winter would be in Maine or Michigan or Montana. Um, really? You know, it's uh, you got three months of the year to get through, and then nine yeah. months that, that it's just delightful. That that's cool. And so. What got you into, like, what got you paying attention to this? Did you, were you like going downhill yourself? Or like- well, you know, I, I had an interesting little insight. It was, it was very simple. I had a field training officer who was a very, very effective officer. Just a wonderful, wonderful officer. Um, he would show up to work a half hour early. His uniform was impeccable. His car was spotless. His paperwork was always done. He always got to work early, 
when he had a trainee, so he would be a good role model. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. But at the, the last shift before the training was done, the field training phase was done, he said, you know, what I like to do is, is take my, my rookies over to my own house and my wife and I have dinner with them. I'd like you to meet my wife. So I said, sure, I'd be on, honored to do that. And he took me over to his home. And I did not know that was his home, but I would drive past it fairly regularly from where I lived. And it was just a dump. He had an old water heater out of the front lawn. The house was a shambles. It was dirty. Uh, he, he, he walked in. His wife was ragging on him. He was ragging on his wife. Oh. And, uh, and, and she would start about how, what a slob he is, and he doesn't pick things up, and he doesn't balance the checkbook. And uh, all of a sudden, I, I was sitting there thinking, how can this person be so effective and so professional in their professional realm because I knew he was mm -hmm. and yet as soon as he got off duty there was this entirely different person transpired uh, lethargic inactive indifferent and uh, I was a student in psychology at the time and I knew that what I was seeing off duty was just classic depression mm. and when he was on duty he was an extremely aware person so I, I didn't know what this was. So I trotted on down to the medical school and I made contact with a, uh, a physiologist they had there and described it to him. And he put me in contact with another scientist and they knew nothing about law enforcement and I knew nothing about physiology. So we sort of started cross-pollinating each other and said, you know, when your officers and your dispatchers and your firefighters are on duty, they put their brain into a very elevated level of alertness. Mm -hmm. And we call that hypervigilance, this mm -hmm. awareness of your environment, the capacity to think quickly, to make rapid decisions. Mm -hmm. But that's controlled by the autonomic nervous system, which has two branches. So any profession that requires people to go into highly alert phases at work will have the opposite when they leave that role which is basically mm. depression because mm. the body swings from a sympathetic branch to a parasympathetic branch. So what we really do is we take our best police officers, our best dispatchers, our best firefighters, and they excel at work. Mm -hmm. And if we don't show them how to break this cycle, every day they get off duty, they drop into this depressive type state and the fabric of their life pretty much comes apart. Mm -hmm. And it was based in biology, though. It wasn't based in psychology. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, just about everything that was being talked about in the United States for stress was a psychological concept. It, it, we, we talked about stress, and if we go to counseling, things will get better, which is yes. true. Yeah. But we, we were missing the obvious biological signs that were right in front of us. And it was this pendulous swing every day. And when I started writing about that early in my career, I was overwhelmed by the response I got from first responders all over the US and eventually Canada and Australia. And for the first number of years, they were just little monographs I would write and then uh, do a lot of oral presentations on the model. But when we wrote the book, Emotional Survival, the floodgates kind of opened and we started getting cops buying it all over the world, basically. Mm 
Yeah. And I was shocked at that. You know, we've sold several million copies of that book and without any marketing. And, and that, that just told me that that was actually touching the lives of our personnel. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to this day, it still frustrates me when I read about increasing suicide rates in our first responders. Yes. And yet we're spending more money now for psychological resources than we ever have. Mm-hmm. Yet it's not turning around the suicide rate. If anything, it's increasing. So, and, and, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced there's a biological uh, dimension that we're ignoring in addition to the psychological. And that's what sort of started uh, driving my, you know, getting me into this in interest of in what eventually, you know, became my life's work in this area. So let me ask you this. So what do we do about the biological? Like, how do you know? Like, what do we do about that? Like, how do we fix that? Here's, here's the beauty of it. It's so simple. When you, you have to have the, the psychological components for trauma and debriefings and counseling. I'm not taking anything away from what we're doing. Uh-huh. But the two yeah. obvious signs that somebody's having a stress reaction is sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. 83% of our law enforcement personnel have inadequate sleep, 83%. That means it's the oddball that gets seven to eight hours of sleep because 83% are sleeping four to six hours. And that's one of the causes, the, the, the major issue in terms of some uh, mood and affect disorders. But the second indication that somebody's having a stress disorder is incremental weight gain around the abdominal area. and the reason for that is very straightforward. When you have to produce adrenaline for your job, you're a dispatcher, you're a firefighter, you're a cop, you have to produce elevated adrenal cortical stimulation. Cops call it officer safety. You have to have that, that vigilant mindset out in the field. Well, that adrenaline, the cortisol from that response hits your liver and your liver releases blood glucose into the bloodstream. That's the energy the first responder feels while they're doing their job. But what that triggers is the pancreas kicking out insulin, which grabs some of this blood sugar and it infuses it in the fat cells, particularly around the abdominal area, to be ready and reserve for the threat that you're facing. Wow. It's, it's sort of like a cop carrying an extra magazine for their weapon, mm. an extra magazine or two. They don't. They hope they don't need them, but they certainly want them if they're in a confrontation. And your body does the same thing when you become alert. It's why bears get fat prior to hibernation. Yeah. It's not just overeating. It's the overexposure of cortisol, over secretion of cortisol. So we just kind of look at our cops and we joke about this. I know. Oh, they're eating donuts. Ha ha. That's funny. Well, this is so funny when you start seeing 60-year-old cops dying and they're losing 20 years of life expectancy. Yeah. You know, when, when, when you're seeing heart disease and in, in 45-year-old men and women that you wouldn't expect until 75-year-old men and women, mm. and we accelerate this and something that could be absolutely prevented. You know, Duke University did research on depression They took a group of depressed patients and they put them into basically two treatment modalities. There are actually three groups, but there were primarily two. Mm -hmm. One group received psychotropic antidepressant medication. The other group 
the other group walked on treadmills for 20 minutes a day. And the third group did both. Hmm. You know, they got the medication and they walked on the treadmill. And this group of clinically depressed patients was studied over four months. At the end of four months, all groups had successfully treated their depression. So by just walking on a treadmill for 20 minutes a day, you were treating depression as effectively as if you placed the person on antidepressant medication. Wow. So when we start looking at suicides in police, yes. ev everybody wants to talk about trauma. I mean, that's, that's the, the last 15 years we're obsessed with trauma. I know. Now, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not belittling trauma. Please, please don't get me wrong. It's terribly damaging to, to the human psyche. But, the, but here's the thing, and you're, I know you're about to say this, but I just want to say this, is that I've talked to thousands of first responders all across the world, and I will tell you, they will sit here and tell you, yeah, Autumn, I've seen some shit. I also signed up for that, but that's not what's messing with me. That's not what's got me feeling this way. So go ahead. Well, you know, PTSD is an anxiety disorder. Yes. Anxiety is a biological state. And I'm often amazed how we miss this. If we want to start treating depression effectively in police officers, mm. we have to start talking about the biological dimension of depression. And I always thought, find it astounding that we haven't moved the ball in, in 50 years in this field. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we hire, we hire phys physically fit men and women. Yes. And, and we put them in the academy and we give them these arduous tasks to graduate from the academy. Our academy here, they run a seven mile run, victory run at the end of their academy. Yep. It's do. a longer run than they do to get out of Marine Corps boot camp. This mm -hmm. is a longer run. And it's up, it's up a very steep hill. Then they finish that. And that, then they, it's the last physical challenge. And these men and women are in excellent shape. And you come back two years later, and they are in worse shape than when they were hired. Yes. So that means all of that energy in physical fitness is just a waste of time. You wasted mm. it because you don't maintain it. But if every cop finished every shift mandatorily going through the gym, we would significantly reduce depression and the depression-related issues because yeah. we would be addressing the physiology that generates the depressive response. It doesn't take anything away from the need for peer support or critical incident debriefing teams or departmental psychology, but it clearly um, will start dealing with the realities. I, I don't know um, of many states that mandate police officers must go through training on, on sleep hygiene. And, and I know, even, no. Yeah, yeah, and yet it's probably the single biggest uh, impact on reaction time studies and judgment. You know, it's so funny. You're, we just had, we just talked to Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman and sure. every, everybody's sitting here smiling at you because we talked about this for a whole hour. I mean, the sleep deprivation is just mind blowing. It's mind blowing. But yet, like you said, nothing has changed. We're not changing the culture. So let me ask you this. What do you think that we can do to help that aspect? How can we, how can we change the culture in this aspect? Well, you can't, you can't come up with an answer until you ask the right question. And if you go to a stress class anywhere in the United States, you'll hear the same repetitive stuff that you've heard yes. for 50 years. Yeah. And 
when I, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I started in, in this field in 1970. That's before probably 80% of your audience was born. <laughs> yeah. I, I, start, I started with an age cohort of cops. Everybody was in their 20s. Uh, almost everybody was a veteran. This was you know, the post-Vietnam era and the post-Vietnam era. And these became co-workers, but they're also people I got to study. And I still follow that same age cohort. Now they're in their 70s and their 80s. And I've watched these men and women age over all those decades. And I've attended a lot of funerals of people who, who shouldn't be dead right now. They should yeah. be playing golf. They should mm -hmm. be riding their Harley in Montana. Uh, yet they died of diseases of adaptation. Um, the, by that, it, it means when your body has to repetitively react to unknown stimuli, to threat stimuli, the body goes through this uh, adaptation response, primarily driven by the autonomic nervous system. Well, that's okay to do that once in a while, but when you have to do it every single day, what happens is the 175-pound police officer becomes a 300-pound, 50-year-old police officer who's confined to a wheelchair mm. because of incremental weight gain. And, and we can prevent this. And we can prevent the heart disease and the diabetes. Yeah. Um, well, by, by providing training in what's legitimately happening to these officers. Yeah, I, I get astounded. We all joke about the donuts. It's not donuts. It's adrenaline. You know, bears don't get fat in October because they eat too much in preparation for hibernation. They get fat because they store too much. Mm. They go into what's called metabolic syndrome and whatever they consume calorically goes into storage. Well, our cops do the same thing in response to protracted stress. Now, the, here's where the firefighters have the advantage a firefighter, I'm not saying anything belittling about firefighters, but they, they stay at the firehouse until mm -hmm. the alarm goes off. Then they go out into a dangerous situation. They save lives, risk their lives. And that's when they're in that highly adrenalinized state. Then they come back to basically the safety of, of the green zone to the firehouse. Yeah. Right. And their, their physiology drops back down. They also, for decades have stressed nutrition yes. and exercise. The cop goes out into the field, and even if they have not a single call for service, all shift, they still have to maintain that vigilance response to practice officer safety. Mm. And I, I always joke and say, this is why women buy calendars of firefighters. They, they don't <laughs> buy calendars of cops. Yeah, true. No, nobody wants to see a bunch of cops with their shirts off, don't you? you know, badges and bellies or something, you know, yeah. they, and, and that's the effect of adrenaline. Yeah. A, bear, a bear is twice as fat at the end of October as they are in the beginning of October, even if the bear gets nothing to eat, withhold all food from the bear, and just by the, the levels of cortisol changing, the wow. bear will store twice as much fat. So we have to start defining this with our cops giving them time to exercise on duty mm -hmm. and, and giving sleep hygiene training for them and their families. Uh, if we're going to really change this. Yeah. You, you think it's those two things, Dr. Gilmartin, you think it's the sleep and like the, the exercise after, like after shift to burn off that well, extra. 
if I could only change two things, those would be the two I would change. Okay. But the, the other issue is we have to start asking better questions. Um, you know, the, um, the nation's reeling right now as you're doing your podcast yeah. from, from the just terrible death of, of uh, George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis. And everybody's um, just reeling about that tremendous, uh, hor horrific death. Yeah. And I'm looking at that police officer and, mm -hmm. and I'm watching that officer mm -hmm. and I'm asking myself several questions. The, the obvious one is what, what psychological pre-employment paradigms Same. were utilized before they were hired? Yeah. Okay. But the next question I ask is how many hours a week has that person been in the police role and for how many years? Mm. How many hours a week did he work? And how many hours a week did he work side jobs and mm. do off-duty employment and work as a bouncer at the, at the nightclub where he possibly met the, the decedent? Uh, we, don't, we don't restrict the amount of time a police officer can remain in the police role. No, you can't, true. You can't, you can't drive a truck beyond certain number of hours a day. You, you can't drive a train if you're an engineer on a crew, on a train. Be, and you can't make a left turn or a right turn on a train. You just go or stop. You can't be a flight attendant and, and basically sit in the front of the plane and pass out peanuts. You can't do that beyond so many hours per day. But you can go out and make life and death decisions as a police officer. And we don't- 16 to 18 hours a shift, right? I mean, that's- Which is insane which is absolutely insane. There's mm -hmm. no science in the world that backs that. If you take a shoot, don't shoot decision paradigm test, reaction mm -hmm. time test, yeah. and you compare police officers to civilians, well, as long as the test is really a pseudo test where you give a police paradigm and the cop has lots of knowledge of police procedure and you're using a weapon that the cop has muscle memory to, the cop always prevails over the civilian. Yeah. But put a series of lights up on the wall and give the cop a laser. And when the light changes colors, you have to hit it with your laser. Or you show a bunch of geometric shapes and you have the person look at the geometric shape. And if they detect movement, the cop has to hit it with the laser. Hmm. Now, now that's a culture-free, culture-fair test. The cop has no advantage over the, the civilian. They're both experiencing the test for the first time. Police officers make 600% more judgment errors and reaction time errors than mm. a civilian does. And, and that's strictly because of sleep. The only variable that separated the police officer from the factory worker was the police officer was averaging four to six hours of sleep and the factory worker was averaging seven to eight hours of sleep. Wow. And, and yet we don't teach this. And then we get cops making bizarre decisions. And, and now we get a glimpse of it. And, well, and, and, and not only that, Dr. Gilmartin, it's almost in the culture. It, it's almost like, ah, oh, like, a, you know, as a police officer, right? It's like, if you're exhausted and you're working all the time and you're, you know, you're getting all of the overtime, that's like, yeah, that guy, that guy. You know, that's that's a red badge of courage, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's like yeah. having a bunch of medals on your chest. Yeah, you know, when a cop tells me that, boy, I did a double shift yesterday and I haven't had been to sleep since Thursday, 
I hear what I hear is I just did a line of cocaine and now I'm going on duty. Uh, okay. I mean, that that's that's how I interpret that because it mm. shows cognitive and reaction time impairment. And that person has to make a decision in the next hundredth of a second. You know, we just sat and watched a police officer for over eight minutes engage in inappropriate behavior with people screaming at that officer. And I know everybody wants to jump on the wagon of racism. And I'm not saying racism didn't play a major role in that homicide, but I'd like to know what other factors played into that. Me that, too. That won't, that won't get discussed and it'll just be ignored and we'll move forward with the same people saying the same things, you know, uh, for the next, you know, 20 years or something. Uh, well, exactly. And I want to know what's going on. What's the culture of that agency? It's just kind of essentially what you're saying, right? Like what, what other factors play in? And it's not only just that agency, it's across, you know, across the country, across the world. You know, well, my thought- I would say across, across the world. I think there's other countries that do a lot better than do they? we do. The you would know States. better than me, but. Well, no, no. I mean, is, is, you know, for example, uh, I do a lot of work in Australia. Yeah. Australia is not an armed society for the most part. Okay. Um, so they, 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 they disarmed. I'm not getting in, in, into anything Second Amendment or, or guns or anything else, but they don't have a lot of guns in Australia. After mm -hmm. the Port Arthur massacre, they basically disarmed the citizenry. Okay. So their cops are not going into confrontations with armed subjects every day. So mm -hmm. I, I would be willing to say it's, it's less likely that an Australian cop is going to be in a shooting than an American cop. So th that's a generality. But I do know this, that Australian cop will start their job in, for example, in Victoria, Melbourne, with nine weeks vacation every year. Wow. Nine weeks. And the average American cop starts with zero vacation. Mm -hmm. yeah, and exactly. they might earn two weeks two over weeks. the first year, maybe. Yeah. Uh, the average American cop and dispatcher and firefighter works in a, in a paradigm of use it or lose it. Yeah. So if you if you book your vacation and mm -hmm. save it after maybe 300 hours, you lose it. You have to use it. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they bank it. They, they bank it and they take extended trips with their family. Wow. They have options and many cops take them where you work for four years and you get every fifth year off with full pay. It's a mm -hmm. sabbatical program. Amazing. Look at all my officers. They're all like, oh well, my goodness, that sounds amazing. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's self-funding because you, they, they reimburse their cops proportionately higher than we do in the United States. And you don't see the cops working these rum dumb long hours of off-duty jobs, and side jobs and moonlighting. They come and they work, they do their job and they, they, their union negotiates the salary. And then on that sabbatical program, 20% is held back, put in escrow. And when the fifth year arrives, it's self-funding and the cop has a year off. Mm -hmm. When I point this out to American police in conferences and seminars, the standard question I get asked by American cops is, well, on that fifth year, can you work off duty? Can you do side jobs? Can you moonlight? Uh, because we get so obsessed with our job because we drop into this depressive state after work each day, yeah. we stop fishing, we stop hunting, yeah. we stop riding our mountain bikes, and our whole world Becomes revolves police around, work. 
right. And, and without, with that year off, they would be lost. They wouldn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And, and when we point this out early in a police officer's career and we give them strategies to get through this, they do fine. I, I know cops that are, are street cops for 30 years. They've been through multiple trauma they, 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 and, and their lives work. Their marriages work. They're, they're physically fit men and women. They, they ride their motorcycles. They play golf. They go fly fishing. So but, they keep their sense of self? Is that what you think they well, survive? They, they diversify their sense of self. They're uh -huh. great cops, but they're also great elk hunters. And they're great fly fishermen. And they're wonderful little league coaches. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that you'll see is that, you know, the depression-related suicides of the on-duty police, not on-duty, but the career, the active career police officer, while they're still in their working years, Mm -hmm. But we also forget to talk about the suicides in the retired cop population. Yeah, where this, this is a person whose whole life is tied into policing. Then they retire and they, they don't have friends. They, they're socially isolated. They're angry. And we lose that person. Um, isn't it like, isn't the average, and don't they say like the average is like of a retired officer, like is like their life expectancy is five years like up to five years after they retire, if they don't have like the other things that we're discussing? I, I, I don't know on that. I, I, because, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff on that. Mm -hmm. But the studies that I've looked at show a reduced life expectancy of police between 12 and 19 years, depending on the state. And yet I still know lots of cops in their 80s that are doing fine, mm. but they've lived healthy lives. And mm. when we talk about wellness in the United States, all we talk about is counseling. I know. We don't talk about mandatory physical fitness. We don't talk about annual physicals. We don't talk about educating cops on simple things that kill them. Well, that's and there, okay. are, and they, and there are simple things that kill them. Um, you know, I, I look back at friends of mine that I've lost during the policing career. Mm -hmm. And... Um, a couple of them died of uh, skin cancer. Well, that's because we're in Southern Arizona and it, it's one of the most deadly places in the world for uh, skin cancer. Oh. And you, you have to have skin care and sunscreen and long sleeve shirts and wide hats. And you can't stand out in the sun, no matter what your pigmentation is, all day long without high risks for you know, skin cancer. Okay. Every physician in the world knows that. But yet, there's not a single moment of training in the prevention of skin cancer for police officers in Arizona. Wow. Uh, yet when I go to Australia, it's mandated that there has to be sunscreen in, uh, available in, in every, public, every public room above so many, that has a capacity above so many people in the room, there has to be sunscreen available. Wow. Children can't wear, if children don't wear a hat, they're not permitted to play in the schoolyard. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, we, we have to take this stuff seriously, and we don't. We pay lip service to it. Well, you know, why do you think that is? Well, be, be, well, I think a lot of it's just driven by political correctness. Mm. Uh, and the other is we, it's always easy just to blame the cop, throw the cop under the bus. Yeah. People are screaming about, we want to prosecute these, uh, these four cops. In, in Minneapolis, which I'm, I'm not 
saying we shouldn't, but I'm also saying this, well, let's look at a system that produced these four cops. How did they get to that point? Mm -hmm. Uh, How did they get there? How many hours are they working per week? And if, if we decided, for example, that police should only be permitted to work 45 hours a week in the police role, after that, they had to shut it down. They couldn't work extra side jobs. We would have to compensate those police officers yes. at a much higher rate than we do. True. Yeah, we, we, we can starve our cops because we know they'll take that work ethic and they'll go out and they'll work an extra 20 to 30 hours a week on side jobs. Okay. And, and we, we just, we, the same people and the same voices, we hear about counseling and we hear about trauma, all, all legitimate things. Yes. But when you start talking about 20 minutes a day of mandatory exercise for every shift, now people back away and they don't want to touch that. But that, that would treat depression extremely effectively. You know, so it was interesting, right? So I, um, I had the opportunity to go to um, the International Association Chiefs of Police Conference in October in Chicago with yeah. my husband. My husband got mm-hmm. Trooper of the Year in Maine. So that was his, his Congratulations. gift. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. He does great work. Um, so we got to go. And the, everything that everybody was talking about was suicide prevention. Well, because Chicago, well, NYPD is leading the way, but Chicago is second in the country and officers are taking their lives right in their patrol cars. So, you know, and we were in Chicago and so that, that has been so prevalent, but, and you're so right that, I mean, there was a lot of different presentations. A lot of people said a lot of different things, but you know, at the end of the day, they recommend counseling, right? A lot, but the, but among a lot of the problems that you're, you're discussing and the biological factors, every police officer is very afraid to go to see a counselor because they are deathly afraid that they're going to get their badge and their gun taken from them. And well, in in some states, that's a legitimate fear. Yeah. 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 In some states, not, not there, there's been states and hopefully the statutory issues have changed, but there are states that if a cop went into treatment, then they had to surrender their commission and their, and their gun. That, that was the law in some of them, and they're very archaic laws, yeah. but hopefully we're past those right now. I'm um, but you know, I, I know this is, there's an epidemic of police suicide, a wave of suicide. And I, I think, I think maybe it's, really a wave of our awareness of police suicides. We're speaking about it, but it's not the first time this has happened. I, mm-hmm. I can go back 15, 18 years, and the California Highway Patrol had an epidemic of suicides. I, I, I don't have the numbers committed to memory, but they addressed it. They started an aggressive peer support program, and they started mandatory training on suicide prevention, and they dropped it for a number of years to zero. Uh-huh. They did, but they, but you, you're not going to solve a problem unless you define what the problem is. Yeah, I agree. Do you, do you think peer support works? You like, you like absolutely. Peer sure, peer peer support takes away a tremendous amount of the stigma. Mm. But if we're going to talk about depression, mm-hmm. and we talk about it as a biological state, th- there should be no stigma to this. It, it's like saying, you know, if you run a marathon you're gonna have muscle fatigue at the end of your marathon. Well, that's common sense. You have a lot of lactic acid built up and myoglobin in your muscles. Jeez, you're gonna you're gonna have stiff muscles. Here's what you have to do to address it after running a marathon. Well, if you're gonna practice officer safety 
and you're going to put your brain into this elevated level of usage yeah. where you're having to look at every nuance of change in your environment, mm. then you're going to have some neurotransmitter depletions at the end of that shift. And here's what you have to do to prevent that depressive state that will be biologically based. You know, depression is a biological state. It's not a psychological state. Right. And, and our cops kill themselves in these depressive states. Mm. And many times, not all the time, but in many times, there wasn't really any precursors to it. Right. They drop into this depressive state and they don't talk to their partners or their spouse. Yeah. And pretty soon that relationship gets uh, shattered or yeah. else they engage in off-duty behavior that's designed to get them out of the depression. Yeah. So we start getting substance abuse. We start getting promiscuity. We start getting high risk behavior and gambling, which mm -hmm. shatters their life further. Yes. And then yeah. that person takes their life, you know, in their mid thirties. And everybody wants to say, gosh, we have to look at who we're hiring and go back and look at those pre-employment psychologicals again. And it's like, are you crazy? This, mm -hmm. The pre-employment was fine. Right. Look at, you know, you can have the best pickup truck in the world, but if you beat the hell out of it and you don't maintain it, you're not going to get more than 50,000 miles on it. But if you maintain your vehicle, you'll get a couple of hundred thousand miles on it. And mm -hmm. that, that's the, the I, I'm, I'm really for maintenance of first responders. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, we can fix all the broken cops we want. I just want to stop breaking them. Yes. And it's, um, so, you know, we've done the right thing by including peer support and psychological counseling. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, if you look at peer support, mm -hmm. historically, it didn't come from, from the police department. It came from the fire department. Mm. The police service back in the 1960s was aware of psychological issues for cops. So big cities hired departmental psychologists. And every department had a psychologist and they had their office there and you go see the shrink and everything will get better. Um, and then, and they, the co they were legitimately committed men and women to helping, you know, they did a good job. Mm -hmm. The fire service never did this. And an interesting thing happened. Air Florida takes off from Reagan airport. It hits the bridge, goes into the Pot Potomac river. All the cops race up there in their patrol cars as individuals, they get out, they jump in the river, and, and they're saving lives. These, are, these men and women are heroic, and they saved lots of lives jumping in that freezing river. Firefighters race in there, jump off their rigs as teams. They jump into the river, and they save lives. The, the two, two cultures of first responders saving people's lives, as they do, risking their own. But when the call is cleared, the cops all get in their individual units. They clear the scene and they go home as individuals. Yes. The firefighters get back on their rigs, they go back to the fire station as teams. A young paramedic firefighter who really changed the world of trauma, uh, Jeffrey Mitchell, uh, understood that what just happened was horrific and he took some part of the fire culture, the debriefing, where they talk about the call and he initiated you know, critical incident stress debriefing. And that was the game changer. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't driven by mental health professionals. It was driven by peers. Mm. And, and so the fire service developed this entire culture of peer support debriefers. And about 10 years later, the police department started jumping on that bandwagon 
and everything got better. You know, there's. Well, I have a question. I want to ask you something about this because I, I love what you're saying and I love where you're going. And one of the things that I preach about a lot is I think that police briefings every day could be done completely differently. I think that I, you know, cause I don't know about you, Dr. Gilmartin back in the day, but I can just tell you that from my experience of being a police officer, as well as talking to many across the country, um, briefing is just the time to shoot the shit and, um, you know, and, and bust each other's balls and blah, blah. I mean, that it, it seems to be overwhelmingly like, yes, we're going to pass information for the first 10 minutes. And then after, you know, the next 20 minutes, that's what we're going to do. But here's what I think either, you know, you can do it before shift, you can do it after shift. Um, depending on how the shift ever, if it's a swapping shift, if you're the same team all the time, it depends. But I, I really think that we could take that time and, and have informal, um, debriefings. You don't have to make it this big debriefing thing. You could just make it like probably with that firefighter, what those teams did together the day after they left, like, let's just sit down, let's just talk. Hey, you know, we had a really busy shift. We had this call, you know, Frank, I know you went all by yourself. Like um, we were busy over here. We had this like crash, like how's everybody doing? And let's just talk about it. But I can tell you culturally, that's not happening. Why? Well, we have to like, but you know, your goal is to change a culture and we, we have to change a culture one element at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to, it, it's um, astounding to me that mm-hmm. we're still doing briefings the way they did in the 1940s for the most part. And yet mm-hmm. we, every cop I know has a smartphone in his or her hand and they're, they have worldwide information right at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. They don't need to get a mimeographed sheet of paper uh, handed <laughs> to them and, and have some sergeant stand up and talk at them. They, <laughs> but yet so that's true. what they do. Know. Uh, you know, and, and you know, there's a need for this collectivity issue in um, for like the debriefing issue. I, I always noticed that um, at large workplaces, Mm-hmm. You look at the parking lot of a um, of a large factory or a large employer. The shift ends. Everybody goes out to their car. They jump in their car, and depending on traffic flow, five minutes later, the parking lot's empty. They want to mm-hmm. get home. Mm-hmm. They want to get back to their personal life. And yet, for many times, you'll see cops get off duty, and unless they're just finishing with take-home vehicles. You'll see them sitting on the rear of cars just yes. talking. Uh, yes. And that led to some of the real pathology of the old school choir practices. Choir practice. Yeah, yes. where they would get together and all the terrible things that happened there. Well, that, that, that developed because there was, there was a need to decompress between getting off duty immediately and then transitioning and stepping back into, into the home. We all know that occurs and it can be managed much more effectively. Mm. You know, you mentioned Colonel Grossman and um, I, 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 talking about sleep issues. A number of years ago, I met him in the airport at Boise, Idaho, and I asked him what he was working on. And he says sleep. And he was, he was mentioning about the relationship between sleep and suicides. And he was talking about, you might have mentioned this on his podcast, but he was talking about that troops deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq had access to wireless uh, connectivity. And even on the time they were off duty and they could catch up on their sleep, they were in fact 
on, on the net. They're playing video games. They were, they were staying connected to the detriment of their sleep hygiene. Mm. So one of the recommendations was to cut off the wireless, limit it, and force sleep hygiene into the situation to address the reduction of suicides, to address the increase in psychological resiliency. But we don't do that. A simple thing like that in, in the U.S. with our cops. Um, part of it also is in some countries, like Australia, for example, there's only six or seven police departments in the entire country. Wow. They're, they're massive departments. And I think New South Wales has 26,000 constables, so I'm not mistaken. Wow. And I don't know how many civilian support employees. Uh, Victoria police, there's probably, I don't know, 16,000 of them. I don't know. Massive departments. So what, when they come up with a strategy and they want to do best practices, you only have to get like six or seven players and in a room and your whole country is represented. And then you can implement them. And the, mm. I'm in Tucson today, and I think we have nine police departments just in this community. Yeah. So we're constantly reinventing the wheel. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, you know, something else. Yeah. You know, we... We're in the, the technology world today. I'm wearing a smartwatch. This watch measures my blood pressure, my sleep, my steps. Uh, when I run, it measures my pace and all this technology, all this data it collects. Well, in many countries, police officers wear those watches and they get a weekly report on how they're doing biologically mm -hmm. on an, an alert. It's, it's confidential. It says, you know, you only got 36 hours of sleep last week. We'd like you to get 49 in the, in the average week. Here's some referral information on sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. We noticed that you got, you didn't get X number of steps. Uh, here, here's, here's some exercise suggestions. And, and constantly giving that officer some feedback about how they're doing. And yet we don't do that. Other countries do it. The irony to me is that technology, both hardware and software, is developed in the United States. <laughs> and those other agents, those other countries, fly to the United States, get briefed, then they fly back to New Zealand or back to Australia or Canada. And oh, we're still and, not doing it. And we don't do it. Yeah, we're, we're very archaic. Uh, we're, yeah, we, I understand. Yeah. And, and the mental health. Go ahead. You know, and I, I'll say this. I get frustrated in the mental health aspects mm -hmm. because not only do we fixate only on counseling, the vast majority of interest is on pre-employment selection I know. and fitness for duty evaluations. Very important. I'm not minimizing it. But until we start having wellness coordinators in our police departments, which are probably going to be more like PE teachers than they are psychologists, and coaches, As, and, and every single pr public safety professional is assigned to one of these coaches who, who maintains their, their, their wellness over the course of their career. Then we'll start making some changes. Then, then we'll have people. You took the words right out of my mouth, Dr. Gilmartin. I yeah. love hearing it. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it. It amazes me to see how ineffective we are at helping first responders. Exactly. 
And, and I'm going to tell you what I, here's what I love what you, you know, I, I really obviously enjoy everything that you say, but I'm going to just tell you the whole coaching thing. I have actually, I live in Maine. <clears throat> Maine is um, very behind a lot of things. Like just, we always are from the West coast. It, I mean, even just a new song drops on the West coast. It literally takes like a month <laughs> for it to even hit Maine. It's just kind of how we are with everything. We're just behind. Um, you know, our largest police department in Maine is like 300 people like just to give everybody an idea. <laughs> um, our whole entire state, main state police complement is like 325. And that's not road troopers. That's the entire main state police. So we are very, we, we're very small, right? Okay. So what has been kind of interesting and what has been cool is I've actually gone and um, before COVID hit, I was in the works with a couple different police departments and suggested, hey, like bringing in the coaching um, and bringing in different ideas. Because, you know, if you look at the business and entrepreneurial world, they're doing a lot of that. And that's how these business people and that's how like the best of the best people they're that's how they're staying on top and they're maintaining and, and they're doing their thing. And, and I'm like, why can't we just bring that to the police world? Like if you ask me police officers, I mean, this is, I'm probably biased, right? Cause I am a police officer, but you know, police officers and first responders, I mean, not that like, you can, we're not like equivalent to a, like um, professional athletes, but kind of like we are in, you know, we're in the game and we have to train. You're far, and we need you're to far more stressed level. than a professional athlete. A, a, a field goal kicker makes a bad decision and we lose three points in a football game. A cop mm -hmm. makes a bad decision and we lose a life. A life. Uh, and yet some of the same dynamics are, are taking place. Human mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. The Yerkes Dotson law of human performance. As stress goes up, performance goes down. Mm. That's why the opposing coach will call a timeout before the other opposing field goal kicker walks out to kick it because he knows he wants to keep that player in elevated adrenal cortical stimulation and freeze them and have them perform an error. Well, in law enforcement, if we use those same dynamics of human performance, our cops would stay fit they would stay lean yes. we would we would have police officers who were sleeping seven hours a, mm -hmm. a night and taking it seriously yes um and we we, we would we would coach them yeah it, 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 it's we're we it's it's tragic to watch the long-term effect of this I know. I know. And, and 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 my i'm an old guy so my age cohorts and I'm, I'm looking at not just 20s, 30s, but I'm looking at 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into 80s now. And people whose quality of life, you know, they fantasize for 20 years. I'm going to do my 20 and I'm going to get out of here. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to go up to Montana and fly fish. Yeah. And then by the time they're 50, they're in walkers. Yeah, they can't do it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's is, terrible. Is, so one, I want to quote directly in your book. Um, you had this quote really, really resonated with me. You said, most agencies train officers to be sprinters and then they enter them into marathons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that's even more so today than at any time. Absolutely. You know, I, I say that because I'm a marathon runner and I like to run marathons. So I, the biggest damage you can do to yourself as a marathon runner is to not watch your splits, your mileage pace for the mm -hmm. first 10 miles. You're running too fast. For every few seconds, you're running above your average pace at the first 10 miles. You're going almost a minute slower at the end. Wow. You just crash. So pace, and, and I love talking to cops who tell me, 10-year cops, who they used to bust their ass for this department back. Boy, I used to 
I had more citations than anybody else in this department. I, I used to arrest more DUIs than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And now I, I, I handle my calls. It's all I do. I ain't going to do shit beyond that. Because the more you do, the more they'll screw with you. You're never going to get in trouble for the traffic stop you didn't make. And, and you know, you hear that every mm-hmm. day in every police department around the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and, and cops are very parochial people. They think that the stuff that's going on affecting them is only at their department. Yeah, you know, it's just right here. It's at the it's two just this agency. Just this agency. <laughs> and, and they only promote the people, you know, they forget yeah. where they come from and they only promote the kiss asses. And, yep. and I'll tell you what, rah, 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 rah. And every police department says the same thing. And every one of them is dealing with these whole biological, psychological, cultural issues that are easy to correct. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's, I, I, I think some very serious errors are being made in the fire service because the fire service traditionally had much more humane shifts. They, um, they were usually deployed in 24 hour increments, some, some permutation of 24 hour increments. Mm. The, the classic one was 24 hours on followed by 48 hours off. Yeah. And during those 48 hours off, the firefighter developed other competencies. They laid tile, they painted homes, they plowed snow. Um, And so they diversified their sense of self. Now, the cities have found that it's cheaper than hiring an additional firefighter. It's cheaper to just pay overtime to a firefighter. So now the the new school firefighters are not getting into the building trades. Mm. They're not having painting businesses and, and, and carpentry uh, businesses. They're working two or three extra shifts as firefighters and it balances out their income, but it's putting them into that same psychological uh, vulnerability that the cops have always had by over identification with the job. And, and so is, do you, how do you think, how can a police officer, because you talk about that a lot in the book, you know, the sense of self and the over-identification. And I'm going to be honest with you. My husband is, like I just told you, he's a very squared away individual. We've had this conversation multiple times. He is, I mean, he's, just to give you an idea, he's four-time trooper of the troop, trooper of the year, canine of the year. I mean, guy's a stud. He really is. But I've seen this. I've seen the hypervigilance pattern and I've seen his sense of self. Um, I've seen it be very different, right? Like he, he lost some things. He's getting them back because we've, you know, we read the book and we're like, we're not going to do this. We're not going, you know. Let me ask you, let me inject myself here. Yeah. Let's just say I became the new colonel of the main uh, state police. And is your husband working canine right now? He is. Okay, well, let's just say I decided to drop all all canines from the state police. Um, I, w- I said that should be handled by the county sheriffs. So, so the main state police will no longer have canine units. Would that be a, a big hit to your husband? I think so. I, 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 I bet it would be because I bet he's damn good at his job. Yeah, I bet is. he cares deeply about his job. And I bet he, he really, really is good at it. And I bet mm-hmm. he's highly professional. And, and, I, and I bet he's, that's why he's trooper of the year. But that strength in one context is a vulnerability in another context. Right. Because you're putting all of your energy and your commitment and your heart and soul 
into something that somebody else controls. Mm. And this is, this is why cops will always say the biggest source of stress in law enforcement is management because management controls what they invest all their sense of self in. When a cop comes to see me, the most important question I ask is, what do you do when you're not working as a cop? Mm. What do you mean? And what do you do? I mean, I, I know that you're an undercover narc and you just took off the biggest cocaine you know, distribution ring in, uh, in the Southwest. I, I, get, I get that. You're a real good narc. But when you're not out there catching dopers, what, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? I, I, what do you do? And I get the guy who said, well, you know, I coach Little League and um, I run 10Ks and I tie flies and I love to go fly fishing. That's, now, that's a, what I'd call a survivor in law enforcement. Mm, okay. Um, the victim is the guy who gives his heart and soul to the job and in comes some new chief who just pulls the carpet out from under him. Uh, I had, I had a, was in a car right before COVID with a, with a cop who was in tears because he had mm. set up his department's peer support program and he got, got it going and he really, really had a great program going and he worked it for three years and he was bringing me in to address his department. And, but that was the last thing he was going to do on that assignment because the chief canceled the peer support program oh. and canceled the critical incident debriefing teams. So, I mean, you could see the devastation of that guy. Yeah. yeah. And, but yet he and I combined together had no control over changing that decision by the chief. But we could work on his strategy to survive the chief's incompetent decision and hope that at some point in the future, it becomes more enlightened. But Mm. that's why many police officers leave their career embittered and they look forward to retiring. Whereas 85% of firefighters, when they look back on their career, do so positively. They say they would do it again. They would be a firefighter again. Whereas most cops say, I wouldn't be a cop if I had to do this all over. I'd, I'd, I'd become a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, a lot of that- I, has I to, say that, I've said that. <laughs> well, so, so we can do a lot to give better roadmaps to our cops. And that was the main reason that, you know, that we wrote that book was to give them roadmaps. Mm-hmm. We've just finished writing the, the revised edition to the book. It's at the editor right now, but it mainly- it's exciting. It's, it's the, it's, the, it's mainly the same book, but it talks more about diabetes and heart disease hmm. because of the biological stuff of depression that we talked about here. Yeah. That's uh, exciting. When's that coming out? Well, it depends on how poorly I wrote it, you know, how much. The, <laughs> you know, I'd like to think it could come out with one draft, but my guess is the editor's going to scratch it to death and send it back, kick it back to me and, and I'll be rewriting. But uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping by year's end. Okay, good. Well, I can't wait. When it does, I'll be, we'll be selling it like crazy. We love it. We love Uh, this one. Um, Dr. Gilmartin, we have a few questions coming in. um, Some of the mastermind members. Um, One is coming from a police wife and she just, she said, um, the update on the briefings, as I suggested, um, did, what would you do differently for the briefings? Well, well, I I think that I would, have a difference between the on duty and the after duty. I mean, the, the going on shift, part of that's informational, you know, and setting the priorities for the next 
shift operationally. But once they're out of that operational mode, uh, I'd go more to like a, almost like a daily debriefing. What did we do? What did we see? What transpired? Um, yeah. Pretty much like, uh, like using a coach, you know, giving a, an after action discussion with, with the team. You know, what, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? How are we doing with this? And, and you know, we, we have made such progress in that area in law enforcement. I know it sounds disheartening at this point, but I've seen times where cops have gone to mass casualty events, mm-hmm. seeing 20 dead people out in the desert. And I, I'm thinking of a group of El Salvadorians coming in the country illegally. They all died in, in crossing the desert south of town. And the, the cops went out and processed 20 dead people, families, and then just went home. And nobody thought that that was an unusual event. <laughs> well, and you know, and I have to say, and I know that so many police officers across, you know, at least the country can relate to this is I, I can't tell you like even on FTO, right? FTO for me, I was really, really young um, when I started in the job. And so on FTO, the first week I saw my first dead body and it was, it was really messed. It really messed with me and nobody talked to me about it not even my FTO. And I wasn't about to talk to him and be like, yo, like mess me up because it's my first week. And I'm like, no, I am not getting that, you know? And I'll be honest with you. It's stayed with me. Like right now I could tell you everything. If you ask me anything about that call, I can tell you everything. I know everything about it. And, um, and I think you're just so right. We just need to have more, like you said, more coaching, more talking. And more education. You know, if you take a chimpanzee and you expose a chimpanzee to a shattered body of a leopard, the chimpanzee does not react. But if you take a chimpanzee and you expose the chimpanzee to the shattered body of another chimpanzee, the chimpanzee has a huge biological reaction to that. The adrenal cortical response elevates and that chimpanzee will not be sleeping normally for quite some time afterwards. So this is, this is not a psychological um, deficit. It's a it's a biologic normal response. And it's often said that you know, trauma is, is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And when we educate our personnel early and often, mm-hmm. then they don't have to worry about this stigma. It's not normal to see a human being that's been killed. Right. It's, a, it's a very traumatic event, yet cops see them routinely. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And so they have these normal reactions routinely. Um, yep. It, it's, um, it's, but, it, but it's biologic. I want to keep stressing that. That's why I, I imagine, I'm, I, I can't use this example much because it's getting too old, but I imagine <laughs> you can remember where you were when 9-11 took place. Yes. Exactly. Not, not, not I think I was in Bangor. No, I was exactly here. I was in Portland. I was getting in the line at McDonald's and I heard about it. Yeah. And you'll do that your entire life. I can go back to when President Kennedy was assassinated oh, and wow. tell you exactly where I was as an eighth grader when that transpired. Wow. And that's because those both are neurologically different events. They both secrete different neurotransmitters. So the cop who's in a shooting or the cop who responds to a fatal car accident or, or sees their first dead body a, a week after becoming a cop, those have the exact same biologic responses and to educate them to that so they know they're not losing their mind. It's mm-hmm. a normal response. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no shame in talking about that. 
-hmm. and just normalizing it. Any more than there's a shame in having a pulled muscle if you're doing an exercise incorrectly. Yeah, exactly. And, and having coaches and mentors that, that teach this and, and support this. Mm, I love that. Keep talking about the coaches. <laughs> it's because I am one, so I like it. <laughs> um, Dr. Gilmartin, another question is, what are your thoughts on um, a mandated once or twice a year visits to a mental health professional for first responders? Well, if I were king for the day, it would be once or twice a year. It's a good, uh, just like I think it would be once or twice, at least once a year to see your physician. And I think once you do that, the stigma of seeing the mental health professional is gone. Yeah. It's understood. Uh, I reviewed a grant for the Department of Justice years ago where they were funding a program, wanted to fund a program, where every member of the agency, from the time they started at the academy, had a six-month visit with, with the departmental mental health professional mm. and for them and their spouse. And it was mandatory. And the one, it removed the stigma, but it also meant that when that officer had a crisis, they already were wired in and had a rapport with a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. And it was very simple to do, to do that. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, next question is, what book are you currently reading? And what book would you recommend? Oh, gosh. I'm actually reading, <laughs> I read a lot of mysteries. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Right now I'm reading a book by, by Philip Margolin, who's a defense attorney in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. But um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to look at, um, the best good book I read recently was a book called Spark, mm -hmm. which was about the, the biologic aspects of, uh, and neurological aspects of exercise on mood. And, and so it's called spark spark. Yes. That's okay. I'll write that down. Oh. Um, let's see. Um, curious on how he thinks we can change the responses from supervisors that maintain the self-destructive behaviors displayed. Yeah, that's good by others. Yeah. Well, become the supervisor, become mm -hmm. the better supervisor. Uh, you know, never put, never count on somebody else changing. You, you, you have no capacity to change the other person. Uh, the, the response would be, how, how do you change reacting to that other person? You know, there are some real idiots out there and there, some of them are supervisors, some are chiefs and sheriffs. I mean, uh, yeah. I know some very stupid people that are chiefs of police, yes. evil people. Yes. And, and I know some very wonderful chiefs of yes. police, but if you're working at a police department and your chief happens to be an idiot, you still have a moral obligation to be the best police officer you can be, regardless of that other person. It's very easy to, to cop a victim role and say, well, I'm doing this because of, you know, I'm breaking into this store here and I'm stealing these color television sets and these computers because oh, that cop and Minnesota killed that guy. Uh, you know, I, I saw an interview today on the news where some guy's in custody and he looks at the camera and he goes, no, I'm just doing it because I like the money. <laughs> I said, there you go. A nice honest thief. Yeah. He's, not, he's not copying a victim mode and right. blaming somebody else. And we do this a lot in law enforcement. Yes, we do. You know, we, we, you know I'm not writing tickets because uh, the chief's an idiot. Uh, well, then that's a sign of police corruption. 
-hmm. The first act of corruption is you stop doing your sworn duty. Mm -hmm. You stop doing something. It's an act of omission. It's, it's, it's not an act of commission. It's an act of omission. But uh, I, so stop waiting for that supervisor to change and you become the supervisor and, and you change the future. Very little can be done about changing the past. I love that. Thank you. Um, Dr. Gilmartin, I think that's going to wrap up um, the questions from us and the member and the mastermind. I just, um, if you have anything else, what would you leave us with? Well, now we talk about I, I, a lot. But. Well, I, I, I tell you, starting today, I, I would ask every one of you to take your sleep seriously. I, I would, and I would keep a calendar and start controlling the things you can control and, and looking aggressively at your every 24 hour block, manage it, you know, X number of hours per day to your professional duties, then Y number of hours per day, investing energy into the other things and people in your life that are important and understand that roller coaster and your job is to get out of the bottom phase, go up into the top phase every day for safety, be the safest cop you can be, but understand it's the backswing at the bottom of the roller coaster that you have to get out of. Mm. And that's where we have to get that exercise, that sleep and that socialization and be real aware of not investing more hours per week in the police role then, then you can professionally maintain competency with. So that's, that's what I would leave you with. Beautiful. And um, Dr. Gilmartin, I'm sorry, we just have one last question. Do you have an idea of what your ideal work shift would be as far as hours and days? Would they be rotating fixed days? What's your suggestion? You know, that's a great question. And I wish I was smart enough to come up with an answer to that, <laughs> but I'm not. But what I, what I do when I get a question like that, and that one gets asked me quite frequently, yeah. I refer people to Brian Vila, V-I-L-A, Victor okay. India Lima Alpha, uh, Brian Vila, and his book Tired Cops. Ooh. Uh, and it's a uh, it's it just Google Brian's name and read some of his monographs that are on the net. Brian is just a brilliant man leading. Uh, person in terms of knowledge of, of shifts for police officers and um, fatigue factors in police officers. And, and there's probably various shifts, there are various shifts lifted, listed there with the strengths and weaknesses. But I will say this, there is no good shift for police officers if we're not going to limit the amount of overtime and off-duty work that they do. Mm. You'd have the perfect shift, then in the days off of the cops going out moonlighting, and working security at the casino or at the local dance hall, then all bets are off. Mm. I mean, it's only so many hours a week of strapping on the uniform and the rest of the time has to be in the little league coach or the, or the, the mountain bike racer. I love that. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gilmartin, for your time. It's been an honor to have you. We appreciate that. So my pleasure. Thank you and best of luck and everybody, please be safe. Take care now. Bye-bye.